welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. I'm Wes Avram. Uh, glad to be with you on our Out of the Park podcast. Uh, we are continuing in a series we're calling Holy Humans. Uh, this began as a Lenten conversation at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, which hosts the uh, Fran Park Center for Faith and Life, but we um, imagine this to be an ongoing reflection on how the life stories of people who learn, struggle, live the life of faith can teach us about our own lives. Uh, some traditions call those call that sainthood. Other traditions call it discipleship. There's many ways of talking about how life story and biography affect spiritual formation. And I'm my conversation partner today is Dr. Elizabeth Ursick. Uh, Elizabeth has been a regular teacher in the Fran Park Center, and we're uh, thrilled to have you here, Elizabeth. Uh, she works as the, as a professor of religious studies and humanities at Mesa Community College. She has a Master of Arts in Religion from Yale University, a, a PhD from ASU, has been involved in many ways in interfaith dialogue, in religion and the arts, in women's spirituality, and, um, and broad interfaith ecumenical activities. Elizabeth, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to the Out of the Park Podcasts. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's talk a little bit about um, sainthood and women's spirituality in the Catholic tradition. Now, that's a little topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly there have been a lot named over the past <laughs> 2,000 years. So, yeah, we can go into any area of that. <laughs> well, how does, um, well, I know you have an interest in, in sort of the broad history of spirituality, women's spirituality, uh, uh, spiritual formation, and um, and the life of faith. I, as you look back on, in, in your sense of this, and as a history of women's spirituality in the Christian tradition, and think about sainthood from ancient times, medieval times, how we think about exemplary lives today, would you see that there's a, a difference in how a valuable life has been interpreted over time? Would we name a different kind of life today to be spiritually valuable than the ancients might have named? That is a very interesting question. And in many ways, we would say it is the same. Um, in the ways that I would say it is the same is when we have someone that goes beyond the expectations of the community in ways that mm -hmm. are the Christian teachings. So, um, you know, to show kindness to someone or to forgive someone, mm -hmm. but to forgive seven times seven times seven in a contemporary <laughs> setting. Well, there you go. That's, that's a disciple for sure. Um, so I think that what is common across time is about going beyond what community expectations are, what people typically say um, is common. Um at the same time, I would say that what is identified as extraordinary in some ways is also common. It's common in the ways that um, it is publicly recognized mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That is, I think that's a big piece of what mm-hmm. is common. And it may be during the person's lifetime or maybe it's after. And maybe there is some difference in regards to that. I can uh, go ahead. I can no, no. see you. Well, well, let me ask a question that is it only quantity? In other words, that these lives exaggerate things that all of us experience, like if we're supposed to give 10 percent of income, they give 50 or if we're supposed to forgive seven times, they forgive 70 times, seven times. Or is there also a an amplification of depth? I think what you're bringing up, which um, goes more into the personal spiritual biography of these people, is to be authentic is to have it sourced from a deep soul place, not be an accident. That's what I would say. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it. Um, I do teach world religions here at Mesa Community College, mm-hmm. and um, this is actually from Buddhism, but it, it fits here, too, that you were supposed to have the intent of doing something good as well as doing something good. Hmm. So um, if you give 50% of your wealth because you made a mistake on how many zeros you put behind <laughs> your donation to the church. Well, I'm not sure if that qualifies as being overly generous. Um, but know. I'm open to it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, um, but if you have the right intent, um, the example I give is, you know, if I'm standing at a stoplight and I'm waiting to walk across the street for the crosswalk signal and there is mm-hmm. an older lady in front of me with a walker and I can see that we're not going to make it across at the pace she's going. And I grab her elbow and I push mm-hmm. her all the way yeah. across. And on the other side, it was like, oh, you saved this beautiful, you know, old woman from some kind of a, a bad fate. But if I was doing it just for selfish reasons, because I wanted to get across and she was in my way and I just pushed her across, mm-hmm. that, that's not the right intent. I'm going down a little bit of uh, of a string here, but to your point um, about depth, I, I would say that for those people legitimately identified as being a saint, being a disciple, um, going beyond that it comes from a wellspring of faith, a wellspring of soul call, mm-hmm. being a partner in the work of mm-hmm. Christ in the world, and and that it's that and not them. You know, I think I'm enough of a Calvinist. I'm not always proud of that. But I think I'm enough of a Calvinist <laughs> to want to say or observe that no human action is entirely pure, mm. right? at least this side of eternity. So is that depth of intent, of intent, does it require purity or can I have a little mixed motive? Can I be a little impatient with the person I'm helping across the street, even as something inside of me wants to rise above and, and, and respond out of care and not just self-interest? <laughs> does a saint have to be pure in their motives? I that is a very interesting question. Um, I would say in this case that it cannot be completely selfish. Uh-huh. Um, and you are absolutely correct because there's a part of us that are, that is human. There, that's the reason 
we are on this path and what Jesus is showing us on how to be and that we are always in some type of a struggle with that. At the very least, I mean, the only way I can communicate what I'm feeling mm-hmm. inside is through the language I am, mm-hmm. um, the geographic location I am, even if it's not something that you would call sinful. Um, I am particular and I am limited. And that's about as far as I can go. And to go beyond a boundary I, uh, and to have it be authentic, I believe it needs to be sourced from something that's greater than me. Mm. But it certainly comes through me as a filter, and my filter is always not completely clear, <laughs> right? So, but so this life though is a is a multi dimensional life that we're describing. If if our motives are in correspondence with a love beyond us, or a story greater than us that we call the gospel. Then our lives are multi. Then a saintly life is a multi-dimensional life. I mean, wouldn't just anyone who is authentically on this path mm-hmm. have a a? You know, we're talking right now about a very high bar yeah, <laughs> of the community. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the um, individuals who was part of this podcast series, Margot Walters, um, loves the um, the idea of the of an accidental saint. That mm. that some sometimes we. Granted, the church, and particularly the the Roman Catholic Church, has a very particular process for identifying people the community identifies as saints. And yet we all have these accidental saints, these models that models of life that we that become kind of models of consensus in groups, even if they're not formally identified. And those accidental saints often would never describe themselves as saints, right? They'd look back and say, what are you talking about? Me, I was just living my life. And yet we look at them and say, oh, no, no, you have something in your life worth worth modeling for us, right? Humility tends to be one aspect of saintly character, right? Because the saint doesn't recognize themselves as a saint. If I stand up and said, I'm the saint, yeah. nope, not many people are going to follow me, right? And nor should they. Um, that I would say that is absolutely true. And let's just say that if you stood up and you said, I'm doing this, to be a saint, then um, because I am a saint, you back to what we just said about how much is us versus how much is God mm-hmm. working through us, um, that certainly eliminates it. But to your point about being accidental, that is very interesting. First, I mean, I'm I'm looking at a whole continuum. The There are three people I want to speak about, a woman mm-hmm. in the time of Jesus, a woman in the medieval period who certainly was Catholic, but also a woman in modern times who is from the Church of Scotland. So, um, you know, the more Presbyterian tradition. So, but in all these cases, there are things I feel in the spiritual life that we get danced. We get danced with our limitations as well as danced with our um, talents. And many of the things that we get danced into appear accidental from our side. And I guess it just depends on how much you feel God is directing every little move in your life. Um, But, you know, there's this place and Mm -hmm. certainly not, I think some of the greatest, you know, I'm a musician and, um, you know, when we think about singer songwriters, um, 
some of the greatest hits, some of the greatest songs are things that just came out of them, you know, in the moment, you know, things mm-hmm. came together or things came together in the studio. Are those accidental? Hmm. Even if there wasn't that much effort or wasn't that much pre-thought? I don't know. They're trained for, right? You've prepared. Mm-hmm. And you might say that your daily prayers, your commitment to the community, your study of scripture, all these things are preparing you, um, you know, to move from a religious setting into more of a humanities setting, Mm -hmm. the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You know, how does that happen? Generally points of suffering, things to actually work beyond, and then having to source from this deepest, better place. Um, of triumphing that allows finally all of you to come forward in the best way. And if we take it in a faith perspective of what you've been made for. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about the three uh, figures that you've sort of brought into this conversation. And before we we go there, I want to ask about that metaphor of the dance that you used a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, I I just, um, I'm a spiritual director. And so I've listened to a lot of people's stories. And for people that don't know what that tradition is, it's companioning someone on the spiritual journey of a place that they can come and reflect on um, maybe what's happening in their prayer life, but often what's happening in their life from a spiritual perspective, Mm -hmm. and how they're making sense of it. And, And my role is to really just help the person sit with their own God conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not for me to direct, which is really a misnomer for the, for the activity. Um, But I have listened to quite a few. When I say a dance and getting danced, it's a beautiful, I love the metaphor because it is a partnership. It is something that happens together. It's joyful It's uh, the improvisation in it, Mm -hmm. um, the getting pushed in certain directions. And maybe this turns into a little in more traditional dancing. The man directs the woman, you know. So from my experience of doing more traditional couples dancing, Mm -hmm. um, you have to be open and feel like small little subtle changes. Mm-hmm. As we know, Ginger Rogers' great quote is, I do everything Fred Astaire does on heels and backwards, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and so this is not just about what it is for women, but as a metaphor, when I think of dance, I, I think because I am a woman and traditional dance and the partnership, it takes me to those kinds of ways of interpreting the metaphor. And the dance is the, um, it's the internal life of of holy living is it the external life or is that the wrong distinction to make altogether well i i think where we to me a dance is when i get moved into a place that i didn't expect to be and it turns out to be better or maybe Mm -hmm. in hindsight looking back at a difficult a challenging Mm -hmm. a difficult a suffering um Mm -hmm. So it's not just joyful things, but I can see that it wasn't just me on the dance floor. 
<laughs> Maybe that's the way to put it. And so there is a certain external part that the recognition of it is absolutely internal. And I would say listening to um, people coming to talk about their spiritual life, sometimes after really struggling with something very difficult in their lives, all of a sudden there's a resolution. Hmm. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of internal freedom. Hmm. Um, I hear this a lot for people that um, maybe have gone through the 12-step program or mm-hmm. have dealt with addictions or have um, even not that, but just people that are incredibly sorrowful that feel like they can never be forgiven for something they've done. Mm-hmm. And then they feel... And here we are, uh, we're recording this during Holy Week, um, that, you know, on the cross, that all of that forever was taken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To bring this down to earth, do you have any lives who have inspired you in this way to tell us about? (laughs) Well, I do have uh, three women that I would love to say just a few things about. Um, and and I think to your question, have, have standards changed? Um, the first is in Jesus's lifetime, and it's Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. Mary of Magdala. Um, we know more about her. What's very interesting is she is the only one in all four Gospels that's at the tomb. Um, she is the first to tell the apostles. Um, and yet, and she was a follower of Jesus. We know by the year 300 that a gospel of Mary was written. And yet we get into, um, I believe it was starting in the fifth, sixth century that this idea that she was actually a penitent prostitute Mm -hmm. inflating two stories together because seven demons were cast out of her when she met Jesus. Um, Magdala was a borderline town to Tiberias that Mm -hmm. the Romans put on the Sea of Galilee. And um, when Jesus goes to Capernaum, that's on the other side of the, the, the big lake, the sea. And so who would be a Jewish family that would actually set up shop right next to the Romans? Um, they needed fish drying, and that's what mm-hmm. Magdala was known for. So um, half-caste um, people that were uh, pushed to the margins of the Jewish community, we don't know why she was there. And um, so the demons, was that? We we just don't know. But um, there is something that um, that gets conflated, um, thinking that prostitution was the absolute worst thing you could do as a woman. But um, I would say that coming once once the story of adultery and the seven demons get put together uh-huh. and the interpretation being that that's the absolute worst thing that a woman could do, um, then. Uh, then all of a sudden she gets painted with red hair. Of course, she's a harlot. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets brought back into the um, the narrative of how we tell the story be- was that she was incredibly, incredibly penitent and then spent the rest of her life just, you know, in ashes. Um, yeah. 
that's a very different story than what we now have from um, writings in those first couple hundred years about who she was and how she inspired the people and who Jesus saw her as all the way up to the end and beyond yeah. the end. So um, what I would say is that for women um, and for men, but she is a very good example of the public recognition for sainthood. It is spotty. Public mm-hmm. recognition is not the only way. Um, sainthood, uh, discipleship is um, you and God, you mm-hmm. in the world. Um, I like to say that um, saints are ordinary and extraordinary. And mm-hmm. if you ask most people who is the most saintly person you know, many of them actually speak about their mothers, about their grandmothers, about an aunt, about, yeah. um, and that's the way that most women actually expressed their mm-hmm. saying, the, the one who loves beyond all loves. I mean, mm-hmm. that what's more Christ-like than that? <laughs> who forgives beyond all forgiveness that, um, and so women haven't been identified as saints as much as men have. And I think that's more societal. Yeah. That's also men were writing the Bible. They were the mm-hmm. ones that could read and could write. And they were writing about the spirit that they saw and they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Mary Magdalene, she gets recharacterized in the way that women were viewed mm-hmm. later in time, but not how Jesus saw her. Mm-hmm. And finally, when we get to the modern era um, and we finally start having women's ordination in some of the traditions, Mary Magdalene is brought forward as the apostle to the apostles. Ah. Icons are painted of her in her Mm -hmm. leadership. She becomes a role model for women today who are stepping into that kind of role. This, this could be an entirely different podcast, but this, what you're describing now sort of brings to mind to me questions about how these lives are used in the tradition on the one hand, they could be used to open up possibilities and to inspire. But sometimes on the other side, they, they're used for discipline, to close down possibilities. And, and, yet, and yet the open-endedness of these lives still comes back. These lives are recovered. The truer, deeper story is, is, you know, won't, won't, <laughs> won't be silenced for too long. Right? Absolutely. And yeah. I, I would say that, you know, I I looked at these three women three ways. There was Jesus who inspired. There was institutional church that inspired and fostered um, that saintly behavior. And then there's also modern society. So moving into the medieval period, since mm-hmm. we've just said that the church tamped down on Mary Magdalene through a, about a thousand plus years, uh, let's see where the church was was in a, um, the one that encouraged and inspired. So this is Hildegard of Bingen. She's mm-hmm. a German abbess in the 12th century. And yeah. she ends up being a leader over two monasteries of women. Um, she was a musician. And because she was Benedictine, they sang the office. And she wrote the music for the nuns to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, um, she started to have visions 
And today, some scholars think she might have had migraines, but whether they were the the living light, she, she writes about that. But she has visions of God and how the church is and how the world is. And then she gives interpretations, which are theological. Um, in her lifetime, the Pope recognizes these as being legitimate, and she becomes famous. So she's invited out to preach. Now, you think about cloistered women that are nuns in a monastery. So she's out preaching. She's leading two monasteries. Mm-hmm. She has visions recognized by the Pope. She's in correspondence with all the major ecclesial figures of the day. Um, she went well beyond the boundary of what a woman was expected to do, mm-hmm. and it was completely inspired and fostered by the church. Um, that was the platform. Of course, she also had many struggles with some of the institutional church, but that's sourced through her love of Jesus mm-hmm. and the Gospels, and uh, but fostered very much by her placement and what was offered her in the church. So um, that is one way that it can happen. Um, I think I'll just, if it's okay, I'll mention the third person and go back and get your reflection on this. The third person in contemporary times, I had the opportunity in um, 2013 to be a visiting scholar at the University of Edinburgh. And while I was there, which was really quite a delight, I was there at New College at the University of Edinburgh. With all these Presbyterians. I know. It was great. Um, We had, um, it was just wonderful. I was even there for the um, general conference, general Mm -hmm. convention. And um, I ended up writing a chapter for a book that I wrote on women, ritual, and power um, about a controversy in the Church of Scotland around female imagery of God in prayer. And it centered around a woman. Her name was Anne Hepburn. And she um, grew up with love of the church, became a missionary at a young age in Malawi, was a teacher. And during those times, she was asked to do daily short preachings, some sermons. Mm -hmm. And then she got married to another missionary. And the next year, her name was dropped off the rolls. Her husband's name remained with an asterisk saying he was married. Hmm. And she gave the story. She said, I was, when I married, I was reduced to an asterisk. She was a good, feisty, strong woman. Yeah. Um, very Scottish in terms of uh, demeanor and, and oh, attitude. Oh, a dissenter. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so when they came back to the States, she was um, a minister's wife, and she became president of the Women's Guild, which was Presbyterian Women. It was the largest volunteer organization in um, Scotland for women. And she led... Um, a opening prayer for, and it was mostly ministers' wives who were the leaders in it. Mm-hmm. And she had a Brian Wren prayer. This was 1982 that contained the language, God, our mother. Mm-hmm. And the room was not happy. And these were women not being happy, not just men. 
and it got written up as a controversy. Um, the Church of Scotland got pushed, and they did a theological study on motherhood of God. And after two years, had to say there are references in the Bible mm, where God are. acts like a mother. Yeah. So it is not theological heresy. Um, but in somewhat of a compromise, they said it is up to the worshiping community whether they actually express it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, when this happened, the um, theological inquiry was not voted on because it was too political. They ended up somehow using rules to go to recess. But the BBC was there. Anne Hepburn was actually interviewed, I think it was 1984, for half an hour on the BBC of not Mm -hmm. getting to present this. And um, so she becomes kind of famous. And so what is happening there? It is really the women's movement of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that are giving women voice, bringing attention to women. And that becomes Anne's platform um, with some resistance from the church. And she is following the teachings of the gospel that all mm-hmm. we are all in Christ. So um, in her case, the platform was created by society. She ends up going on after that. She becomes one of the three women that Scotland get to um, designate for a new advisory panel to the European unions coming together mm-hmm. on women's issues. And she becomes a leader in that. But always with her faith, one of her daughters becomes a minister once uh, uh, women ministers are allowed. And uh, she always loved God. And it was always sourced from that. But the platform was created by society. We um, we are actually, we have so much more to talk about here. And we're at the end of our time. Um, so I think I'm going to bring this to a close and invite everyone to listen into the next podcast for a little extra conversation about just these questions that we're talking about today with Elizabeth Ursick. So be sure to tune in next time for a little bit of an extension. This is the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.